We're continuing a series today, um, quite possibly concluding, but we just never know, a teaching series that we've been in for several weeks now uh, that we're calling Roadblocks Moving Forward. Three weeks ago, I thought part 10 would be the conclusion of this series, but then went back to my notes uh, from our planning session with the teaching team where we mapped out this series, and I looked at all the topics that had been suggested and discussed, and there was one topic that kind of stood out, and it wasn't my suggestion. It wasn't even a topic that had been suggested for me to teach, but it ended up getting set aside in favor of some other topics through this series, but I was drawn back to it. So I went to the person who had suggested it and asked if it would be all right for me to take a stab at it. So that's how we got here today with one more topic in this series. So this is part 11 in the series. So I'm I'm not going to go back and review because that would take half of our time, uh, except to say that as we follow Jesus, if we're moving in a direction, if we're moving forward, then we've said that it stands to reason that there's a path that we can follow that there's a road that we can walk on, and perhaps while walking on that road in our following of Jesus, at some points along the way, we are going to encounter some roadblocks. These roadblocks have the potential to negatively affect our spiritual and emotional and relational health, to slow our progress and even create distance between us and God. So we've started off each week with with the words of the Apostle Paul from Galatians 5, where he said, since we are living by the Spirit, Let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. So, today's topic may surprise you, uh, but I want to talk about a concept that, depending on your church experience, your experience in the church subculture, the kinds of books that you have read or read, studies that you've done, this very idea can stop you in your tracks and kind of paralyze you in your faith journey. I want to start into this topic today by talking about three of the most beautiful words in the English language, three words that have saved me over and over, probably would have saved me some struggle, probably some embarrassment, definitely some money if I learned this earlier. The difference between wisdom and foolishness is often these three little words, I don't know. The smartest people you know got that way because they're willing to admit I don't know. Like the entire process of childhood and adolescence and into adulthood is a process of discovering all the things you don't know and being willing to admit that. So that's what I want to talk to you about today. The reality is that when we are willing to admit our ignorance, we are on a path to growing. But if we think we already know everything, we will only remain in our ignorance. June 10th, 1752. Many of you remember that well. Philadelphia. It's the day that Benjamin Franklin flew his silk kite in that thunderstorm with the key attached to it. You know the story? Franklin was an endlessly curious person, always willing to admit what he didn't know. And he didn't know much at that point about electricity. But he was intrigued, so he spent some time experimenting with it in his home, and he was able to create little sparks, little, little static electricity sparks with wool and metal and stuff like that. And he began to wonder why these little sparks looked like tiny bolts of lightning. And he speculated, what if lightning is nothing more than electricity? What if it's just static in the atmosphere? So to test that theory, he flew his, that silk kite, and sure enough, as the lightning storm was approaching, it picked up a charge, and the key, as the rain fell on it, actually started to spark. It led to one of the greatest discoveries and inventions of the 18th century. You know what I'm talking about? The lightning rod. You probably never thought about this, but for centuries, churches burned to the ground more than any other buildings. Do you know why? 
because in any given town or village, the church bell tower or steeple was the tallest structure. The lightning would strike the bell tower or the steeple and causing catastrophic uh, destruction. But Benjamin Franklin realized if you put this metal rod on the top of the tallest building like the, with wires to the ground, you could safely conduct the electricity away from the building, save the structure, and save lives. Simple device, an amazing invention, just one problem. In the 1700s, there were Christians, both in Europe and in the colonies in America, that refused to believe that Ben Franklin's view of electricity and lightning was true. In their minds, I'm talking about Christians, in their minds, they had already completely, they already completely understood how lightning worked. In their minds, lightning was not static electricity in the atmosphere. No, 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 no. Lightning was wrath from the finger of God. And they would be right at least according to the 1980s theological dissertation that we used to sing, there's thunder in his footsteps and lightning in his fists. And if you know, you know. But for real, in the, anyway, in the 18th century, it was commonly accepted that a lightning strike was God's wrath against sinners, which was in keeping with you know, sinners in the hands of an angry God kind of worldview. And it was pretty dominant in that period. It was pretty widely known that Mr. Franklin was a non-religious deist. And his lightning rods, they were interfering then with the will of God. In fact, they believed that you were actually provoking God's wrath by putting the lightning rods on top of our buildings and, God forbid, a church. And so when lightning rods started to go up on buildings all over, both in the colonies and in Europe, people protested, and they protested very strongly. And they were greatly concerned when a neighbor would put up a lightning rod because they believed that you're going to provoke God's wrath on the town. And if you think masking and vaccines during COVID divided churches, let me tell you something. The original lightning rod issue was literally lightning rods. <laughs> churches were divided over these things. I mean, if a church put a lightning rod on top of its building, in some places that was clear evidence to other congregations that that church had turned away from God and rejected the gospel. Yeah, no. We would never... We'll come back to the lightning rods later. Here's what I want you to get. Benjamin Franklin being willing to say, I don't know. I don't know about lightning. I don't know about electricity. I want to know more about this. By saying, I don't know, he opened himself up to curiosity. He was teachable. And that led to one of the greatest discoveries of that century. Whereas others who thought they had it all figured out, who thought they completely understood this phenomenon, were closed-minded and unteachable, and insecure, and brittle in spirit, and it led to divisions among people and unnecessary catastrophes. So for the last few weeks, you know, the last few weeks we celebrated Independence Day, a uniquely American holiday, and I was working at the time on this teaching for today, and I thought about what I see when I look at our country, what I see and what I think about when I think about America, what I think about when I think about the church in America, like right now, and I think this may be one of our greatest challenges. We live at a time of incredible diversity and plurality, a lot of challenges, a lot of differences of opinion and different views that are filtering through our culture. And there are some voices in the church that are telling us that the way to navigate this moment is with certainty. To not give an inch about anything we think, my, any opinion we hold, any belief that we've ascribed to, we need to hold it with unwavering certainty. Every inch, don't give up. 
But is that really what we're called to as followers of Jesus in the 21st century post-Christian America? Or is it possible, is it possible that our absolute certainty is only making us, I wrote this word, I'm going to say it, stupid, (laughs) or less credible and less influential with others? Is it possible? Like, could there be another way, a way of humility, a way of teachability that leads to new and growing influence for the church in this age? What about humility and teachability? If you have a Bible with you or you're using the Bible app, I want you to turn to the Gospel of John. We're going to be in chapter 9. We'll have the scripture on the screen as well. But the Gospel of John, chapter 9, is a fascinating chapter, and we aren't going to take the time to read the whole thing. We're going to cover a lot of it, but um, we're not going to unpack the whole thing. Uh, I'm just going to highlight some things and take you through the story bit by bit. It it begins when Jesus' disciples encounter a blind man. So here's the story, 1 John, chapter 9, verse 1. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? See, the disciples, uh, they understood how blindness worked. They thought they had it all figured out, just like the Christians in the 18th century with lightning and lightning rods. Blindness, to them, was God's judgment upon someone's sin. So the only question in their minds was, who sinned? Was it the blind man himself, or was it his parents that provoked God's anger that led to this condition? And I never really, I don't know about you, but I've never really figured out how it's even possible that it could have been the blind man's sin that led to God to judge him with this blindness, since the text says he was born blind. So I don't, they haven't really thought that one through. But it seems to me that people in that community would have known the story. They knew this man. They knew that he'd been born blind. But um, anyway, this is a common belief even among the religious people and the religious culture of the day that a physical handicap like blindness was the judgment of God. And they didn't bother to ask any questions because the disciples just leaned into this default way of seeing the world because they were sure they knew how this worked. And Jesus is like, guys, you you don't know what you're talking about. Verse 3, Jesus says, neither this man nor his parents sin. But this happened so the works of God might be displayed in him. And then Jesus goes on to heal the blind man. Eventually, the town is all kind of stirred up about this. It's unheard of for someone to have their sight restored. There's not a single miracle in the Old Testament of someone's sight being restored. This, so they're like, this had to be the work of God. But they were confused by it because if this man's blindness was a consequence of sin, either his or his parents, and his blindness was the judgment of God, then who would dare come along and mess with that? Like, what business did anyone have to reverse the judgment of God? And this whole thing started to make them really uncomfortable. So they took the blind man to some of the smartest guys in town, to the synagogue leaders and the religious leaders, to ask them, like, explain this to us. Because these men were so certain that they understood how the world worked. They understood how God worked. They understood all the Old Testament. They, all the laws and commands, they had that all figured out. So when they saw this blind man, and they heard that Jesus had healed him, oh, and here's an interesting detail, verse 14, the day on which Jesus healed the man's eyes was a Sabbath. It says he did so, by making mud with spit and dirt, which is disgusting, and putting it on the man's eyes. You ever tried that? And they said, wait a minute. God has clearly commanded us not to work on the Sabbath, but healing someone by making mud? Clearly, that takes effort. So Jesus just completely violated the Sabbath. Verse 16. Some of the Pharisees said, this man, meaning Jesus, is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. (laughs) We got that figured out. Verse 24. They said, we know. We know that this man, Jesus, is a sinner. Like, their certainty 
is just dripping off the page, right? These guys were so smart, so educated, so certain that before they really investigated what happened, before they spoke to Jesus about what happened, before they began to rethink some of their theology or investigate the scriptures more carefully about the teachings of the Sabbath, before doing any of that, they'd already made up their mind. They were certain Jesus was a sinner, case closed, end of story. On the other hand, you have the blind man. He's not a blind man anymore. He's a man who was healed, having been born blind. He was uneducated. He was unemployable. He was ignorant. He was not trained in theology and scriptures. He was at the very bottom of the social hierarchy. And yet at the end of the chapter in verse 38, it's the blind man, the former blind man, who says, Lord, I believe, and he worships Jesus. So let's talk about this. Let's try to understand our tendency towards certainty. And why did certainty lead to the blindness of the religious leaders? Why the humility and the uncertainty of the man born blind leads him to worshiping Jesus? So the question, I think, for us is, how are we going to choose the better path? So let's begin with the, with the, uh, the certainty and the blindness of the religious leaders. So to do that, let's do a little time travel and visit San Francisco, California, December 21st. 1954, a woman named Dorothy Martin claimed that aliens had spoken to her. And so anytime anybody's telling you this story, you want to lock right in on that. Woman, yeah, so she, uh, aliens had spoken to her and given her a vision of the future. December 21st, 1954 would be the end of the world. The aliens told her there was going to be a cataclysmic flood. The entire world was going to be destroyed. Dor Dorothy Martin started a cult that became known as the Seekers, and she told her followers that if you perfectly obey all my instructions, the aliens are going to come back, rescue us on their spacecraft, while the rest of the world will be destroyed, but we will be saved. I'm not making this up. I think she was, but the, the Seekers... <laughs> The seekers ended up following Dorothy Martin's teaching. They sold all their property, they left their jobs, they left their homes, they isolated themselves on the outskirts of town, and I don't have to tell you that December 21st, 1954 was not the end of the world. But this whole scenario, this whole thing caught the attention of a guy at Stanford University named Leon Festinger. Leon Festinger was a social psychologist, and he found a way to infiltrate the seekers with the goal of studying their cognitive reactions and their coping mechanisms when their beliefs ultimately failed. He wanted to understand how these cult members reacted to being proven wrong when the sun came up on December 22nd, right? And how, how they reacted to the being proven wrong about these beliefs about the world ending that they had held too strongly. So he spent hours and hours interviewing them, and what he found is pretty, pretty remarkable. What he discovered is only a tiny fraction of those cult members were willing to admit that they were wrong. Only a handful were willing to say that, yeah, they'd been duped by Dorothy Martin. The vast majority of these cult members refused to change their belief. And Festinger's like, but the world didn't end. And they're like, yeah, 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 it didn't. But the reason it didn't end is because we obeyed Dorothy Martin and the aliens decided to give us more time. Not making this up. Leon Festinger, in his observations of this cult, ended up coining a term that you've no doubt heard before, the term cognitive dissonance. Cognitive dissonance is the mental conflict that occurs when your beliefs don't line up with your actions or with what's happening around you. Cognitive dissonance is the discomfort a person feels when their behavior doesn't align with their values or their beliefs. It's what happens when you hold a, strongly, hold a strong belief or opinion, and then you encounter a fact that contradicts that belief or opinion. 
cognitive dissonance. Don't you hate it? It makes us so uncomfortable. It's noise in the brain. It's this tension that I have this belief, but there's this thing out here that's pretty clear I'm wrong. And it's really hard to live with it. And that's what these cult members were encountering. They had this belief that the world was going to end on December 21st, 1954. It didn't. And that's the kind of thing that leads to cognitive dissonance. And what Festinger showed is that for most of us, cognitive dissonance is absolutely and completely intolerable. Like, we refuse to live in a state of cognitive dissonance. We somehow have to reconcile our strongly held belief with this new information. But what he also showed is that the vast majority of people will go to extraordinary lengths, listen, to not actually have to rethink their beliefs. That's exactly what these cult members did. They didn't want to admit they were wrong. Instead, they turned it around like, no, no, we actually prevented the end of the world by obeying our cult leader. And we can criticize their behavior, but I wonder if we're guilty of the same thing. I wonder if the same thing could be said of us in some areas of our belief system, in some areas of our worldview, in how we see and interact with the world around us. Like we hold something strongly, we're certain, because that certainty makes us feel so good, so comfortable. And it, we lean so heavily into that comfortability that even when we encounter facts that disagree with us, we won't change our beliefs. Let's go back to the lightning rods in the 18th century. In the decades that followed the invention of the lightning rod, there was a split both in Europe and the colonies. The anti-lightning rodders were convinced that lightning wasn't static electricity. It was the wrath of God against sinners and how dare you interfere with God's will. The pro-lightning rodders pointed out a, a, a logical inconsistency with the anti-rodders point of view. And what they said to them was, wait a minute, if lightning is God's judgment against sinners, why is it always churches that get struck and burned to the ground because the fire department's response wasn't great in those days? And, and, and so it's always the churches, never the brothels and the bars. Cognitive dissonance, strongly held belief, facts that contradict that belief, what are you going to do? Well, the anti-lightning rodders had an answer. They weren't going to, because they, they just weren't going to admit that, yeah, yeah, lightning must be static electricity in the atmosphere, or maybe lightning rods are a good idea most of the time. No, they weren't going to do that. What they said was, it's not really God directly causing the lightning, it's, it's thunder demons that are causing, not making this up, it's thunder demons that are causing the lightning, and that's why it strikes churches, because God has allowed the demons to take over the lightning as an extension of His judgment. Oh, that makes sense. And we laugh, but, but be careful. So then, through whatever the equivalent was of Facebook and Twitter in the 18th century, news began to spread through the Christian subculture that the best way to fight thunder demons was by ringing church bells. And I hope you can see the, 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 the problem here. There's certain, yeah, there certainly meant they doubled down on stupidity all throughout the colonies and in Europe as well. And so as thunderstorms were approaching, churches sent men up into the bell towers. It's hard enough to get people to sign up to serve coffee, right? So I don't know how you get people to sign up. You're going to be the guy who takes the call. Hey, the thunderstorm's coming. Get up to the top of the bell tower. And we put guys way up high in the sky, tallest building in town during a thunderstorm, surrounded by a, a giant metal bell or multiple metal bells, hold on to a wet rope. Great idea. Great idea. In the decade after the invention of the lightning rod, 
Over 400 churches in Germany were struck by lightning and caught fire. Mostly they burned to the ground. Over 100 bell ringers were electrocuted. In France, it was very similar. Just around, just around Paris in its vicinity, 103 bell ringers were electrocuted between 1756 and 1786. There's no need for that. The three decades after the invention of the lightning rod. To the point that the parliament in France had to pass a law banning bell ringing during thunderstorms. <laughs> Certainty can make us stupid. See the same thing happening in John chapter 9 with the religious leaders. They were so certain that they were right that even when presented with logical inconsistencies in their own argument, when they, when they were shown that they didn't have it right, they refused to bend. Look at verse 13. It says, They brought to the Pharisees the man who'd been blind. And the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him how he'd received his sight. He says, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and now I see. And some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. That was their takeaway from this story. They were confident that they were interpreting Scripture right, confident that they understood Sabbath law, confident that Jesus was a sinner, but then they had their facts challenged. Verse 16, others asked, how can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. There it is. Cognitive dissonance. We are certain we have this Jesus guy figured out, and yet he's healing the blind, which we know only God can do. How do you reconcile that, this cognitive dissonance? I want us to pay attention here because they do three things to try to reconcile their cognitive dissonance, three things that we still see all the time today, even in the church, and that's why I'm talking about it. Number one, they denied the evidence. Verse 18, it said, they did not believe that the man had been born blind. He didn't believe it. It's a hoax. He wasn't really blind. He was faking it this whole time. There was no miracle. This whole thing is like, I don't know, fake news. We don't have to believe this. This is ridiculous, of course. Like our beliefs are consistent. Our certainty is sure. And we do this all the time, don't we? We hold something really strongly and we're confronted with something that contradicts it and we go, well, that's fake. We don't have to believe that. We bury our heads in the sand. We choose not to believe it because we don't have to believe it and we just move on. This deny the evidence approach doesn't work too long with the religious leaders because eventually this man's parents show up and they confirm, yes, that's our son, and yes, he was born blind. So now what? Number two, when the facts can't be denied, you discredit the messenger. So they attack the blind man, or should I say the man born blind? He's no longer blind. Verse 31, the former blind man is speaking to them. He says, we know that God does not listen. <laughs> we know. We know that because we're certain about stuff. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. But if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, <laughs> you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. When you can't deny the facts, discredit the messenger. What they're saying is, hey, we are like... Do you know who you're talking to? We are the smartest, most educated guys in Israel. You are an uneducated buffoon who was born blind, which we all know means you're a sinner. We all know that because we all know that people are blind because of sin. We're confident of that. So why should we listen to you? They're trying to discredit the guy in front of the whole community, saying we don't have to listen to anything you say because you're basically you're an idiot. We see this all the time. It's not much of a stretch, is it? To like, oh, I, I see it. I don't have to listen to that. It's the New York Times or the CNN with their liberal bias. I don't have to listen to that. 
oh yeah, that's Fox News or Newsmax with their MAGA agenda. Come on. We dismiss, did I get both ends? We dismiss any evidence we don't like. Anything that contradicts what we firmly believe. And it's an easy way to avoid cognitive dissonance because that makes us so uncomfortable. There's a third thing. When you can't deny the evidence, when discrediting the messenger doesn't work, there's one final option before us, and this is what they did. They created distance. Verse 34 says, they threw him out. So this is kind of insider language. What they actually did was they excommunicated him from the synagogue. That's a big deal in this culture because uh, this man who was born blind and now can see uh, because he wouldn't stop sharing his story because that story was causing people to question the authority of the religious leaders, they had to create distance. They had to get rid of him. They had to kick him out and they had to silence him so that the cognitive dissonance wouldn't spread. So here's what I really want us to see. This is so important. The religious leaders didn't kick him out because they were certain they were right. I think they kicked him out because deep down on some level, they feared they might be wrong. Ever been there? They're protecting their certainty, but what they're really doing is protecting the illusion of certainty. The comfort that comes from knowing I'm absolutely right, and anyone who disagrees with me, kick them out. It's a sign of weakness, not strength. Leon Festinger said that we will go to extraordinary lengths to avoid what he called carriers of dissonance. So carriers of dissonance can be people, carriers can be news sources, carriers can be whole communities. We will distance ourselves from anything that might cause us to doubt or question our firmly held beliefs. And this poses a significant problem for us as 21st century Americans. Why? We live in the most diverse, most disunified society that's probably ever existed in the history of the world. More racial diversity, more ethnic diversity, more religious diversity, more economic disparity and diversity, more political polarization than at any time in the history of our country. And what I'm saying is we're surrounded every day by endless sources of cognitive dissonance. Like every time you encounter a coworker, a neighbor, someone at school that thinks, votes, behaves, chooses, believes, worships differently than you do, you risk cognitive dissonance. Every time you turn on the TV or scroll through your news feed on social media or Google News, every time you see a social media channel coming through your feed that presents ideas or views that you don't like or disagree with and you think the algorithm's broken, you're encountering cognitive dissonance. And my great concern, honestly, for the church in America right now, and that includes us, is that more and more we are responding to this cognitive dissonance very much the way the religious leaders did in John chapter 9. We deny Oh, that's fake news. I don't have to pay attention to that. That's right-wing propaganda. That can't be trusted. We discredit. We don't have to listen to them. They're not, they're not real journalists. They're not true patriots. They're not real Christians. Look at what they do at their church. They're not real Christians. We, can't, we can dismiss them. I don't have to listen to that. And then when that isn't enough, we distance. We, could, we know it as cancel culture. We cancel them. We isolate ourselves into echo chambers where we only encounter media that reinforces what we want to hear rather than what we may need to hear. We bring ourselves into homogenous circles of friends, including churches, where everyone thinks like me, votes like me, views everything just like me, where I can always be comfortable, have that warm, fuzzy feeling, being certain all the time. Let me tell you, when we live like that, when we lean into that kind of behavior, we're not behaving like Jesus we're behaving more like the people who were opposed to Jesus and ultimately had him killed. And it doesn't have to be this way. 
There is another option. Do you know what concerns me the most? You know who's recognizing this tendency in the church? It's our kids. Our teenagers, our preteens, our young adults, our college-age students. They see when we behave like the religious leaders rather than like Jesus. We've got to have a degree of empathy and some understanding for this generation. They're growing up in an incredibly complicated time. They're growing up surrounded in their young lives with cognitive dissonance where they're being challenged about all the beliefs that their families and their churches uh, are teaching them. And so as they reach adolescence and enter young adulthood, they are full of questions. Questions, and they should be, questions about faith, questions about politics, questions about justice and race and sexuality and gender. And they're bombarded by this stuff all the time. And if we think we can isolate them and if we think we can separate them from all the questions of the culture, good luck with that. But the challenge is our own children are carriers of cognitive dissonance. But they're not out there in like nameless, faceless entities out in culture somewhere. They're in our homes, they're in our churches, and as they reach young adulthood, they start bringing those questions and those doubts into our communities and into our churches. I mean, I hope we're creating environments in our church experience where they can bring those questions. And as they do, sadly, what we tend to do is respond to the younger generation. Like our default response in the church tends to be the religious leader's response to the blind man in John 9. And essentially, we cast them out. Now, not overtly, right? We don't literally kick them out the way that they did this guy in John 9, but we send our signals. We communicate that question is not welcome here. That view of politics is not, or, or of culture, or this particular issue, we don't say that here. We don't talk about that here. We're not into that. Don't ask that here. Why? Because it makes us uncomfortable. Because like you're causing us to question what we think. And that's not all right with me because I want to be comfortable. I want to come to church and just be comfortable. So please don't challenge me with stuff. So sooner or later, our young people who grew up in the church, they figure it out and they're like, oh, I get it. You're the Pharisees. You're not Jesus. You're not even the blind man. You're the Pharisees. And they leave. Almost every month, there's another study coming out about how many young people are leaving the faith, showing that the number of people in our country who no longer believe in God, no longer believe in any kind of organized kind of religion, if that's the term we want to use, or an organized experience around worship of God, people who are leaving that, it's a, at an accelerating, unprecedented rate in American history. Most of them come from church backgrounds. Why? Well, there's a different explanation from every study that they do, every survey. It's politics. It's changing sexual morals, whatever it might be. And there's truth to all this stuff, but I don't think a lot of these studies are getting down to the real foundational issue, which I think is cognitive dissonance. It's young people who are full of questions and doubts that are not welcome in their faith community, so they leave. It's not welcome by their faith community because we would rather be comfortable in our certainty than welcome carriers of dissonance. We'd rather live with the illusion of certainty than in the open embrace of those that we disagree with. And it doesn't have to be that way. The problem with the illusion of certainty is sooner or later those illusions are shattered. Brescia, Italy, August 18th, 1769, 20 years after the invention of the lightning rod. The church of San Navarro and Brescia still refused to put a lightning rod on top of its building because they believed that their bishops and their bells were enough to keep the lightning and the thunder away. 
They were so certain of their belief, of their understanding of lightning, that the town leaders decided to put 200,000 pounds of gunpowder in the vaults of the church, <laughs> believing it to be the safest place in town because God would never permit lightning to strike a church. But this day, on August 18, 1769, a lightning bolt did hit the church and it exploded catastrophically, destroying a third of the town and an estimated 3,000 lives. Certainly, not on, certainty not only makes us stupid, it can lead to catastrophic failure. This is my concern for the church today and for our church. When we're feeling threatened by the plurality of our society, the diversity, all the new ideas, all the new people, all the new cultures, all the new religions, so many Christians are being told certainty about everything is our only hope. But is it? We don't have to be like the religious leaders in John 9. We have another option. We can be like the blind man. Notice it twice in this chapter, in verse 12 and in verse 25, when the blind man has been questioned about Jesus and all the things that happened to him, twice he simply and humbly says these three beautiful words, I don't know. Three words that the religious leaders would never utter. Three words that can open us up in humility and teachability to learn and discover. Three words that eventually led the blind man to a place where he would fall on his knees before Jesus and say, I believe and worship him. So if we're going to break through the illusion of certainty, and this is important, we need to learn to distinguish between God and our ideas about God. They're not always the same thing. Let me explain. Certainty, strictly speaking, is not always wrong. It depends on the kind of certainty, or maybe it depends on what our certainty is in. You see, the religious leaders had this sinful, prideful kind of certainty because their certainty was in their interpretation of Scripture. Their certainty was in their traditions. Their certainty was in their ideas and their education about who God was. And that's what got them in so much trouble. Strictly speaking, the blind man also had some certainty, but a different kind of certainty. In verse 25, the blind man speaking, he says, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. There it is, that beautiful humility. I don't know. But one thing I do know, here's a certainty. One thing I do know, I was blind and now I see. His certainty, listen, was not in his ideas about Jesus. His certainty was in his experience with Jesus. And that makes all the difference in the world. We can go out there and parade around culture saying, we know this and we know that and we're right on this and we're right on that thing and you're wrong and people who, you know, see that and hear that are like, really? Good for you. Our kids, I think, are going to say, are you kidding me? You know? Instead, what if we build our certainty on an authentic experience with Jesus and say, you know what? I'm not sure about that idea. I don't know. I don't know. Could be. I have other thoughts on it, but here's what I do know. I know the love of God. I know the power of God in my life. I know that he loves you too. My final point is this. We can break this uh, illusion of certainty by living with one another in diverse communities. We can break this illusion of certainty by living in diverse communities. Communities, frankly, that are filled with cognitive dissonance. The first church in the first century, it was just boiling over with cognitive dissonance. Jews and Gentiles, free people and enslaved, rich and poor, men and women, all of society around one table calling each other sisters and brothers. And the world thought they were nuts. 
Even Jesus' 12 apostles were riddled with dissonance. There was Simon the Zealot, a freedom fighter, a patriot who believed in using violence. And Matthew the tax collector, a globalist who believed in cooperating with his enemies just to enrich himself. They were called into the same community. That's cognitive dissonance. When we are in community with people that are different from us, when they vote differently, when they think differently, when they love differently, when they live differently, it brings humility to the church. Frankly, rooms like this give me hope. Because here's a newsflash. Not everyone in this church sees everything the same way. We all feel very strongly about barbecue, but everything else is... <laughs> just needed to lighten the thing. We have different views in this room on some theological ideas. We have Calvinists who don't even know they're Calvinists. We have Arminians who don't know what that is, and some of us are in between. We have people who are pre-trib and post-trib and a-trib, and if you don't know what any of that is, don't worry about it. We have young earth creationists who pretty much can nail down to the day when God spoke the world into, into existence. We have old, old earth creationists, and we have evolutionists. We have very conservative Republicans. We have very progressive Democrats. We have people who love guns and are probably carrying right now. We have people who would love to see every gun beaten into garden tools. We have people with all kinds of views on all the hot button issues. We have people who tolerate our music for the sake of a younger generation. But man, they would love it if we do some more hymns and don't use guitars and drums and ruin it. We have people who think the chosen is right up there with the Bible. And we have people who won't watch it because there's money from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints behind it. And they had a pride sticker on one of their cameras. So we're all over the place and stuff like that. <laughs> This may be a surprise to you, but we're not that ethnically diverse. <laughs> Can I just address the elephant in the room? We're not that ethnically diverse because here's why. We live in Down East Maine, all right? That's the reality. But we do have people from Africa and Central America and Scandinavia and Canada and even Massachusetts. So, like, we've got it all covered. We're, that should count for something. <laughs> here's what I'm saying. We may not be as diverse as we'd like to be, but we're getting better. We're better than we used to be. We're growing more comfortable with the diversity of ideas and worldviews, and that's one of the things that gives me hope about the church and about this church, and I pray that we will always embrace that diversity, that discomfort. Uh, it's communities like this where we can embrace the upside-down, inside-out values of the way of Jesus and the newness of God's kingdom can thrive. Oh, by the way, that church in Italy, in uh, San Navarro, that was destroyed in the explosion when the lightning bolt destroyed the gunpowder, Eventually, uh, they rebuilt the town, they rebuilt the church, and it's still there today. And at the top of the pediment, the highest point on the church building, is a beautiful marble statue of Jesus with a halo around his head. But the halo, it's not marble. It's metal. And the radiating glory out of the halo, they're not just beams of glory, they're lightning rods. That statue is a reminder that the true glory of the church is not found in our absolute certainty. It's not in our power and our strength in our own culture. It's from humility. It's from teachability. It's from repentance. The true glory of the church comes the same way it came for Jesus, by surrendering power, by surrendering our certainty, by being humbled as broken in front of the world. And if we're going to thrive in these diverse times in our society, it's not going to be by bludgeoning people with what we think is right but by welcoming people around us who carry dissonance, welcoming them into our questions and doubts and reminding them that you too are welcomed and accepted and loved by Jesus. 
The glory of the church is not in our power or our strength or our knowledge or our certainty. The glory of the church comes like the man born blind when we can humbly say three simple words. I don't know. But this I do know. I was blind. But now I see. And now church, like the man born blind who now sees, let's stand together and worship Jesus.